reaching out to people who are in completely different social settings to you, um, just putting yourself out of your comfort zone socially. It might have cognitive benefits, and there's also actually other health benefits beyond that, such that you're building resilience in your brain, or at least so our research shows, uh, because you're being put in a new scenario. They're challenging you to new perspectives, new ideas. Um, sometimes perhaps that's competing and someone you don't get along with, but it's exercising different parts of your brain um, that would potentially help build resilience into your later years. Our changing abilities as we age are on topic with IU. My name is Kenny Smith with the Media School at Indiana University Bloomington. And today I'm speaking with Dr. Adam Roth. He is a research fellow at the Department of Sociology and at the Indiana University Network Science Institute. Dr. Roth, thank you for joining us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. If I can oversimplify your work for a single sentence, I would say that you are studying how things in the world around us impact our health. And that leads you to studying things like cognition and loneliness, mortality and and non-professional informal caregiving. And you and some of your IU colleagues have a new paper out in the journal Biodemography and Social Biology that furthers that work. The paper, if you'll allow me, is titled Do Subjective or Objective Cognitive Measures Better Predict Social Network Type Among Older Adults? You're examining here, if I've got the title right, and if I've read the paper correctly, uh, cognitive impairment in the social structures around older adults. Do I have this right so far? So far, correct. Now it gets trickier then. So let's define a few terms. Tell me what we're talking about from your your research and professional experience, uh, perspective when you're using this term clinical cognitive impairment. Right. So clinical cognitive impairment would refer to if you were actually to go in to see a professional, a neuroscientist, at you know, a hospital or something, they would give you a series of clinical tests, sort of well-established things in their field to determine whether or not you had some form of cognitive impairment. So as opposed to subjective cognitive decline, which is something you or I might notice in someone else, clinical cognitive impairment would be, um, you get some sort of test, like perhaps they list a series of words, or they tell you some story and to uh, sort of paraphrase what you heard and some orientation questions as to where you are and trace these dots and all these types of tests, which could indicate to them to give some quantitative measure of how impaired you may be um, on quote unquote objective tests. So really formalizing perhaps what is uh, observable by your closest uh, network connections then. And you're talking about social networks. This would be, I gather, our human interactions rather than just the platforms I'm using online. Is that right? That is correct. And that's a a good distinction you make because people often hear the term social networks these days in the 21st century and their mind instantly jumps to online social media. But when uh, we speak about social networks and sort of this research realm, which I'm part of, we're talking about, yes, just that, the in-person relationships you have and the connections between all those other people. So the types of social networks that have been around for hundreds or thousands of years, person to person. And you're trying to build here on, on what your colleagues and yourself have as this known link between a person's cognitive function and their networks, the interconnectivity you talk about and the social diversity. What's the overview explanation to what you found in this particular round of research. Research is cumulative, of course. So give us the 30,000-foot overview of where you are right now with this particular study. I'll go back one step and just point to the larger literature, so 30,000 or above view, <laughs> of that there is a established link, and this goes back through decades of research, showing uh, a link between one's in-person social networks and their cognitive health as they get later in life. Broadly speaking, people who have larger social networks and more diverse networks, meaning networks that are consisting of friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, all sorts, 
these types of people tend to have better cognitive function. So we spoke earlier about this clinical cognitive impairment. They're going to have a lower clinical cognitive impairment. They're going to score better on these clinical tests than those who have networks which are smaller uh, and more homogenous, so less diversity. So perhaps they're just consisting of their family and maybe a few close friends. And these network members are all going to know each other. So larger networks, diverse networks, people who don't necessarily know each other, uh, tends to relate to better cognitive health. So the question we had in this specific paper you're asking about is whether or not that was driven, um, that network relationship was driven by these quote unquote objective measures of cognitive impairment. Those are the things you get if you went into the clinic or if they're more subjective measures, something that uh, you know the average person might notice that you have some form of decline where, whereas you basically interact with a person and they, you might walk away thinking, oh boy, they, they really don't seem with it. They couldn't really remember who I was. They seemed out of it. They, there might be something going on with them. The, the lay person would notice. Uh, and in this paper, we wanted to uh, distinguish this because if it's subjective, there might actually be some social withdrawal or social rejection. If someone's exhibiting signs of cognitive impairment that is noticeable to anyone, that might actually put strain on their social relationship, make them want to sort of withdraw from that relationship which might be driving this um, connection we see between social networks and um, impairment. Whereas if there's no relationship there and it's really all clinically based, um, it might actually be um, something different going on is that they just can't uh, maintain those network ties or perhaps the other way around, you have a larger network and your, your cognition is gonna stay intact for longer. So that's sort of what we were trying to parse out there. And the reason we're parsing those two out, the, the subjective and the quote unquote objective measures of cognitive impairment is because those two are not always perfectly linked. There are people who um, can have some form of clinical cognitive impairment and no one would really notice. So it's important to distinguish those two. And that's what we aim to do in this paper. So I'm going to sidetrack you just a little bit then, because I, you mentioned this word and, and I'm fascinated that seeing it in the paper as well. Um, and I did a word search in, on this study, but the word diverse shows up 13 times. So let's define that too, because you, you've touched on that here, but it's not just my in, inside my house, my, my closest relatives. What is diverse to you and, and your colleagues here? And, and why do we think, or do we know that that is so impactful in these outcomes that you're studying? Yeah, this is a fantastic question. And one in which there's actually two answers. I give you the sort of um, ideal answer of what diverse means to me in terms of a network and specifically how it relate to cognition. And I think it's multifaceted. So I mentioned earlier about different relationship types. So I might have, let's say, a network of 10 people, five of whom are my family, three of whom are I consider my friends, one neighbor, and then one colleague who are in my core network. Uh, that's one way to measure it because there's diversity of different relationship types. And what we know about relationships is depending on your actual role or relationship type with another person, you're going to be put in a different mindset, right? When you're speaking with a colleague, you're going to be in a professional mindset and you're going to have to act a different way. And you have a history with them in a way that's different than your close friend that goes back to third grade. Sure. You might you know, joke around with, go to a bar with, have a drink with, as opposed to your family members and even different types of family members. You act different with your parents than you do with your sibling, than you do with your child. Sure. So the logic here is different types of relationships put you in these different mindsets and you're actually exercising different parts of your brain, which are gonna build resilience down the line. So if you ever have any sort of neural damage or actually develop something like Alzheimer's disease, you have enough resilience because you've been exercising different parts of your brain such that if one part gets damaged, you can reroute through the other parts of your brain and still function relatively normally, cognitively speaking. 
So that's one way we mean diverse. Um, that's the way we measure it in the paper, is just looking at relationship type. But ideally, it would go beyond this, right? You'd look at the history of how long you've known them, how you know them, um, how you interact with them, maybe in what context you interact with them. And some of those relationship type actually might get at that. Like if a family member, you assume you've known them your whole life or their whole life if they're younger than you. Um, but different ways to measure it, of which when we're actually looking at the research side, they're just data limitations to um, what you can ask people or what you have asked people. But in a nutshell, that's what we mean when we talk about diverse social networks, specifically as it relates to um, this field of cognitive health. So I need to expand my circles is what you're telling me here. If you would explain it to me as a, your non-expert colleague, how sure. your research that you're doing uh, right now, how this paper, how you're conducting that research. So what I've done with uh, my colleagues on this, um, this particular project, which this specific paper is actually part of a larger um, funded project. So we've had multiple uh, streams of research coming from this, is we've teamed up with some uh, researchers from the Indiana University uh, Medical School in Indianapolis. And they've been collecting uh, years and years worth of data on a cohort of older adults. So they're getting all those clinical measures of them. They're putting them in the neuroimaging scans so they can actually see what their brain looks like. And then what we've done is come in and ask them a series of survey questions about their social lives. So broadly, we look at who's in their social network. So we get them to name a series of people. We don't put any cap on it, but name as many people as you can who fit a specific prompt, whom you discuss important matters with over the last year, whom you talk about your health with, um, these types of questions. And then once they give us a name to these people, we ask connections between these people. So you're actually painting a picture of a social network for each individual older adult in this cohort at the med school. And then what we do is we link these um, social network data to these uh, clinical measures of cognition. So then you can see, as we spoke of before, if people who have larger, more diverse networks, how they're scoring on some of these clinical cognitive measures um, compared to those who have perhaps smaller networks. So in a nutshell, that, that's sort of how we're collecting the data um, and how we're thinking about analyzing it. And the prompts then keep this sort of in a container. That way I'm just not randomly listing people I knew in the 1990s, but people I'm still active with. Right, and this is a, a fantastic distinction that is inherently problematic when you actually get into social network research is the average person knows, we don't even know how many people, but you can imagine hundreds, if not thousands of people that they've had at least some form of interaction with throughout their lives. So yes, you would need to cap it based on, like you said, you don't want to go back your whole life. We spoke to in the 90s. Um, and specifically, you need to put domains on it. It's not just tell me everyone you've seen in the last week. Because if you're a very social person, this could be, you, you might not even remember how many people you have, which raises other issues of recall of um, who's in your network. So to make this manageable, yeah, we put time constraints on it. Usually it's in the last year. How often have you, you know, okay. interacted with these people? And meaningful roles. So discussed important matters mm -hmm. in the last year. There's probably only a handful of people that someone has actually felt met that specific um, question. That's very interesting. So the logical follow-up, if you're talking casually about this as well, Dr. Roth, how do I make sure I'm doing all I can to ward off cognitive impairment in my later years or even maybe the not-too-distant future? What should I be doing now? <laughs> oh, now you're asking me to prescribe. Um, <laughs> best advice. Let's just think of no, it as best but, advice. Of course, uh, and I'm happy to do that. What our research shows, and this actually stems beyond the research of uh, myself and my colleagues here at Indiana University, but just more broadly um, among academics across the U.S. and other countries, shows just that, that expanding your social circle, speaking with not just more people, but a more, a more diverse array of people. So perhaps 
people outside those with whom you're familiar, instead of being introduced to a friend who knows all your other friends, which by the way, you should probably still do that, uh, but reaching out to people who are in completely different social settings to you, um, just putting yourself out of your comfort zone socially. Though that's kind of uncomfortable or can be for some people, particularly introverts, um, it might have cognitive benefits. And there's also actually other health benefits beyond that, such that you're building resilience in your brain, or at least so our research shows, uh, because you're being put in a new scenario. They're challenging you to new perspectives, new ideas. Um, sometimes perhaps that's competing and someone you don't get along with, but it's exercising different parts of your brain um, that would potentially help build resilience into your later years. And this could go throughout the life course. So if you're, for your younger listeners out there, same thing can apply. You don't have to be, you know, in a certain age group to, to start doing this. So is it too easy to say then that the research suggests that simple stimulus might have some determining impact on my cognition? I would say that's actually a fair assessment. And we focus specifically on social networks. Um, I do have some current research also that looks at some other sort of social realms, but not necessarily networks. So some of the neighborhoods you live in um, being uh, also influencing your cognitive health. Um, but sort of through the same mechanism is that it's probably stimulating you or building some sort of resilience. So no, I would say that's not an oversimplification. And you hear perhaps uh, in sort of popular press literature, the same idea of, you probably heard, you know, do crosswords or do spooku puzzles yeah. or these types of things or learn a different language or learn an instrument because they exercise your brain and that'll help against something like if you ever develop Alzheimer's disease. The same principle would apply here. It's just sort of a different stimulant, um, but in short, the research overwhelmingly suggests that those who have this and have this throughout their lives do tend to fare better um, later on in life. So no, I would not say that's oversimplification. And I imagine that some of the circumstances we found ourselves in amid the pandemic could figure into this as a practical matter too. You're talking about social isolation and that limits necessarily perhaps the circles that I'm using, particularly for the elderly in some cases. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, the pandemic's fascinating for variety of reasons, pretty much every aspect of life. But certainly this, when it comes to social isolation, not to mention stress, um, there is a wide body of research showing that stressful events are detrimental to, well, many aspects of health, um, but cognitive impairment becoming one of them. If you are someone who's um, subjected to chronic stress throughout your life or throughout many years, that can have negative consequences down the line in terms of your um, cognitive decline. Which is why one of the reasons, again, one of many, the pandemic has been slash was problematic, particularly at the beginning when a lot of people were socially isolated and not seeing people, at least in person, is A, it limited them having those larger diverse networks and stimulus, but also there was the issue of having social support and sort of a buffering mechanism you can think of this is if you undergo stress, you do want some people who are you're emotionally close to, ideally a small group of people who would actually know each other, who can help give you those warm and fuzzy feelings um, that would prevent the effects of stress getting through to negative health consequences. And the pandemic, I think, probably was problematic for that. And I, perhaps I shouldn't be using past tense. We also don't know the long-term consequences of this. So it'll be interesting to see, and there already is research out, but continuing down the line, the effects that something like the COVID pandemic has on specifically cognitive health. And in that sense, it's not unreasonable to assume that beyond the social interactions that you and your team are studying, that there are other mitigating factors impacting us environmentally as well, or the other external factors, I should say. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, again, we focus specifically on, you know, 
well, social networks is our main thing, but other social elements too. I mentioned earlier, I'm interested in sort of neighborhood effects on one's cognitive health, but I think there are many factors um, outside of that, the you know, stressors being one of them and social networks can be used to buffer against stressors, but that could be brought on by sort of like macro level conditions. So if you will, something like the COVID pandemic, which to some degree or another affected everyone, it affected some people much more than others. Um, but then there's also individual life events that happen, right? If you have some personal tragedy in your life, that can um, be an outside, perhaps environmental factor that could influence um, well, actually a variety of negative health outcomes. But since we're talking about cognitive health, can affect that as well. Um, and then there's also sort of the um, natural environment issues, right? So um, affecting cognitive health. So being around pollution and things like this, air quality, uh, does have some relationship with cognitive health. Um, speaking a bit outside my realm now, but I know enough to know that that is uh, also important. So it's not just all talk to more people and all will be good. There are many elements that go into this, not to mention a genetic component, which I won't speak too much to, but that does have a role as well, and particularly in developing something like Alzheimer's disease. But your point would be, while I cannot control my genetic makeup, I can control my interactions. And so this would be a, a doing myself a favor in the long term sort of idea. Uh, so you write about something called the social attrition perspective, where cognitive decline can cause us to lose our relationships within social networks. Am I right in reading that? That looks like a like a potential snowballing effect. Right. So yes, the, the social attrition perspective is, as you, as you sort of defined, people pulling away from you or vice versa. And the idea there being because something might be wrong with you. So there can be some stigma towards it. If someone's always forgetting something or just sort of acting out of the norm because they may have some cognitive health issue. They're experiencing quick uh, cognitive uh, decline, and all of a sudden it's very uncomfortable to be around this person who you were formerly very comfortable being near. The people might pull away from them, right? So that's sort of the from the, the psychosocial perspective of what it means to maintain a relationship with someone. On the flip side, and I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, um, it might be the, um, the affected individual is, um, they're pulling away because they're embarrassed. I mean, no one wants to get older and show signs of it. So if you're constantly forgetting things and sort of not quite with it and can't follow a conversation, there might be incentive on your end to sort of pull away from people um, as a protective mechanism. So that, that's sort of what the social attrition perspective um, would get at. And that's indeed what we tried to um, test in this specific study that we're, we're discussing. And if there is impairment found, making... Uh new social networks repairing existing ones could be even more challenging, I would assume. Oh, absolutely. And and yes, I mean, you mentioned snowballing earlier. I think that would very much be the case, right? Is if you're, um, it, presumably it's just going to get worse and worse. If you have some form of cognitive decline, it's unlikely you're going to bounce back and get better. Um, typically it sort of just gets worse. So if you're losing some of the close relationships, keep in mind, these are already close relationships to you and they're pulling away. It's probably very difficult to go out and find more. So it is a snowballing or perhaps it's reverse snowballing if you're getting smaller. I don't know what you would call that term. Um, but yes, I imagine if that scenario does happen, that that could be what you'd expect to see is getting worse rather than fixing it, just replacing those people. I look forward to you having a precise definition of that in your next paper, but I'm looking at some of the things on your Vita, some of the titles of your other work here. How do you see this study that we've been talking about today fitting together for you and your larger research agenda? You mentioned that this is part of a, uh, a bigger project. Talk about that in a more holistic sense. Yeah, so I've been studying sort of personal social networks for 
well, a number of years, since I started my graduate studies a number of years back. And I'm interested primarily in, in the later half of life. So as we get older, what people's social networks look like, where they live, who they're, um, who they're talking to, all these types of things broadly affecting their health and well-being. So this specific paper looked at cognitive health and specifically cognitive decline. And I am part of a larger research team here at Indiana University in which we look specifically at that, at Alzheimer's disease and the relationship between social networks and Alzheimer's disease and the progression of it. So that definitely is one element of my work. And I have other um, research studies and have been part of others that look at this. But beyond that, I'm interested largely in just the social side of later life. So I have looked at things, as I believe you mentioned at the top of your podcast, um, looking at things like um, all-cause mortality. So what type of social network you hold and then your likelihood of actually passing away within an X number of years um, in follow-up. I've also looked at uh, caregiving, so um, the related, or, uh, how older adults who become informal caregivers, once they progress through that, um, that social role, how their social networks change as a response and how that affects their health. Um, so broadly, these are the types of things I'm interested in. What is it that draws you to this kind of work? That's a fantastic question. <laughs> and I wish I could give a convincing answer. Um, other than that, for me, I... I mean, I guess it goes back to the beginning of my college days when I picked a, a major and I became interested in, in sociology just because I live in a social world and I found it fascinating to read about a lot of topics that I could see in my everyday life and the everyday life of those my, around me, my friends, my family. Um, and for me, I think I became specifically interested in social networks because it was something tangible that I could see sort of as a building block of society is just a connection between one or two people, right? If you don't have social relationships, there is no society. And then the connection between those of each person's embedded in their own personal network, but you put those together and there's a larger network of, you know, a town, a city, a state, a nation, um, and that the connections matter for a variety of reasons. Uh, they matter for our health, but also they can matter for other things, right? They matter for whether or not we can get a job, our academic achievement in school, um, just our overall happiness. There seem to be endless possibilities for how, who we were connected to, and as I mentioned, where we live as well, and these types of things all matter for how we progress throughout our lives. Uh, and I found that fascinating for one reason or another, because it seemed to explain a lot of the, the questions I just had in my mind growing up and as I uh, entered college and eventually went on to get a PhD in the subject. So as I, as I cast you back in the, in the on topic with IU time machine, it's just always interesting to me, like to think of that in the concept of here is a young college student thinking expansively about those things, which is not typically perhaps uh, what you would expect a young college student to be thinking about professionally. That's quite intriguing. So talk a little bit about what's forthcoming for you in terms of this research agenda, where you're going next. Yeah. So I actually preface this a little bit is, I'm interested in the, the types of places people live and the neighborhoods and affecting, well, cognitive health being one of them. So some of the projects I have coming up or actually I'm currently working on, but um, hopefully we'll continue to do so for the next five years or so, is looking specifically at rural urban differences in cognitive health. So there are macro level studies showing that people in rural areas tend to have higher rates of cognitive impairment and dementias like Alzheimer's disease uh, than those who live in urban metropolitan areas. And there's many explanations positive as to why this is, but the, uh, 
approach I'm going to take is actually looking, again, keeping on point with the research we've been talking about today, is looking at the social networks of people who live in rural areas versus urban areas. Because in part, who you actually can include in your social network is partially dependent on where you live. Obviously, people can have friends all over, friends and family all over the globe. But on average, you make friends or contacts with people who are in your general vicinity. That can be in your town or even in your neighborhood. So we're going to be looking, my, I have some colleagues working on this project with me as well, um, at the sort of social network perspective. But we also plan to give them cell phones. So a lot of the participants will have mobile phones, but then we'll be able to track them as they actually go throughout their day using GPS. So you'll get a footprint of where they're going and who they're talking to at any given time, as well as sort of an aggregate view of who's in their network over the last year or so. So we'll be using these measures to, to try and get it um, the different daily social lives as well as social networks of people who live in both rural areas and urban areas and compare the two and see if that can explain some of these geographic differences that are known to exist. So yours is research that I look forward to keeping tabs on in the next several years, no doubt. We like to wrap these chats up with a positive takeaway. So from your perspective, as the, uh, as the writing scholar here, what's an encouraging note we can look to in this growing area of research? Well, I think it's encouraging, and you, you mentioned this prior, that uh, there actually is, if we're looking specifically at something like cognitive impairment, there is to some degree something you can do about it individually, right? Is that you can be more engaged socially or some way stimulate your brain, and that doesn't have to necessarily be socially. But there are things that are um, you can do to help prevent that as opposed to just saying, oh, it's in my genes. All my parents and grandparents had Alzheimer's disease and died of it. I'm, I'm going to go the same way. Um, your likelihood is probably higher, but that actually um, there are some elements you can do, you know, engaging with more people in different areas and challenging your brain throughout your life, of course, um, can help offset that. So I'd say that's, that's definitely one positive note to come out of this research. Dr. Adam Roth is in the Department of Sociology and also he's at the Indiana University Network Science Institute. Dr. Roth, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. And we thank you for joining us as well. For more information, follow us on social media. On Topic with IU is on Facebook and Twitter. You can subscribe and download this podcast from services like SoundCloud, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Anchor, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. Just search On Topic with IU on your favorite podcast provider. From Bloomington, Indiana, for On Topic with IU, I'm Kenny Smith.